This morning we find ourselves in a continuing study of 1 Timothy, which is an epistle, a letter written by Paul to his spiritual son, his true child in the faith, Timothy. And if you are familiar with the Pauline or Pauline epistles, that is the letters in the New Testament written by the Apostle Paul, you may have picked up on the fact that Paul appreciates and likes to use military or war metaphors. And unlike the stereotypical picture of a church filled with soft people, singing soft songs, living soft lives, we as Christians know that we are at war. And this war is unlike any physical battle known to man. It is difficult. I'd imagine you can come up, and they have come up with ways to stop a tank or even an invading army. But how do you stop the invasion of a culture? How do you stop the oncoming socially accepted norm? How do you stop the universal designation of good, acceptable, and right for something that is sin in the eyes of God? But more importantly and more specifically, how do you stop an individual's sins? How do you stop your own sin? The answer is this. You wage war. You battle. And suddenly you understand Paul's affinity for using military metaphors. As we continue in 1 Timothy, we will see a usage of this picture of war and the soldier and like war, like physical war, we are given a spiritual situation that is simple. The means of success take effort, and the consequences of failure are severe. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, where Paul writes this. This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme." This morning, four assurances of Christian service. Four things that you can be certain of when it comes to this battle that we know as serving the Lord and serving one another and serving the world, four assurances of Christian service. The first assurance of Christian service is the high calling, the high calling. I'm going to read for you again verse 18. This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight. Timothy was called by Paul to remain at Ephesus to be the pastor of the church there, the Ephesian church. And as we have seen in 1 Timothy, there is a particular problem that he has to deal with first and foremost, and that is the rise of false teachers and the false teaching infiltrating that particular church. Now, whether it is this particular ministry of addressing false teachers or ministry in general, we see that it was not Paul who chose Timothy, but God. And although we know this is always true of everyone in light of God's sovereignty, we see here that there were specific prophecies made about Timothy. Well, let's start at the beginning. He says the command. Paul refers to a command and it seems to be not just pastoral ministry in general, but the call he has thus far explained to Timothy regarding dealing with false teachers. And by using that word command, by calling it a command, as well as, it, as, well as connecting it to these prophecies he mentions, it emphasizes that this is not just from Paul, but this is from God directly. And the word Paul uses, command, refers to a military order. In other words, a command in the truest sense of the word. It is not a suggestion. 
It is not an option. It is not open to discussion, debate, and definitely not open to defiance. This particular command was entrusted to Timothy. The word entrust was a banking term that spoke of depositing something of great worth to the care of another. We do this, a bank deposit, if you will. And what Paul says is he entrusts the command, again, not just because of what he sees in Timothy, but because of the clear prophecies that were made about Timothy. And although we don't have the specific prophecies about Timothy in Acts, we do have in that book other prophecies, one in particular, that indicates what kind of thing, what kind of prophecy that Paul is referring to. And if you turn to Acts 13, we will see the closest to what Paul is referring to regarding the prophecies about Timothy, because in Acts 13, verses 1 through 3, we see that Barnabas and Saul were set apart through a prophetic word directly from the Holy Spirit. That's what a prophecy is, God speaking through man. Acts 13, 1 through 3. Now there were at Antioch, in the church that was there, prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene and Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, this is what makes it a prophecy, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. You may be familiar, uh, later in Acts 21, there's a very specific and picturesque, if I can put it that way, prophecy about what Paul will face in physical difficulties when Agabus takes his, his uh, belt, essentially, and ties himself up and says, this is what uh, the Lord told me, that it was a prophecy that you will endure this, Paul. And then in 1 Timothy 4.14, which we'll look at in a few months, these prophecies about Timothy are mentioned again. I'll read that, 1 Timothy 4.14. Paul says, Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. And so the prophecies about Timothy, as Paul writes this, are now being unfolded as Paul ministers as a pastor and is specifically dealing with the false teachers. And we know that all that Timothy has been called to do all that Timothy has been trained to do, all that Timothy has been commanded to do needs the focus, the stamina, the commitment, and conviction of a soldier in battle. And we see Paul's fondness again for military metaphors when he exhorts Timothy to, and he uses this phrase that we so like in the church, and rightly so, fight the good fight. Fight the good fight. The first usage of fight there is a verb, which means to, win, to make war, to fight or war as a soldier. The second is a noun that speaks of a military campaign or expedition or warfare in general. Make war, Timothy, in this expedition of warfare. And notice that this fight that Timothy is to fight is a good fight. He says, don't fight the bad fights. Fight the good fight. And Timothy and we know exactly what he's talking about. The word good used here can be translated good, of course, but also noble, excellent, virtuous, or intrinsically good which is a strange way to describe a war. There are battles and wars in our history and in our present day that are not good. They may seem good and noble and virtuous to the person instigating the war, perhaps even the soldiers fighting the war. Perhaps they are driven by freedom for their people, more power, more prestige, but we know that there are so, so many fights that are not good. Even in our personal lives, 
the fights we engage in, the arguments. They are about ego and reputation. They are not intrinsically good. In fact, many are intrinsically sinful, if not downright evil. There are many factors that political scientists would use to determine whether a war is good or bad. Factors such as sacrificing a few for the preservation of the masses, political shifts and stability, economic strength. But at what cost? There is still loss of life. There is still political instability that affects the entire world. There is still financial ruin. Ultimately, what makes a fight good and noble is the end goal. And the end goal in the Christian's war is not subjective. It is not determined by the comfort or even the health of the people who stand to gain from the war. What makes our war good is that the end goal is literally good as determined by the very definition of good, which is the Lord himself. And the beauty of this fight is that the only true casualty is the one that has already occurred on the cross. Fight the good fight. And we know that the gifts of revelation and prophecy have ceased. In other words, when the apostles died, so did these gifts because they were no longer needed with the completion of the canon of Scripture as well as the establishment of the church. To put it simply, everything God wants us to know, he has written down right there in that book or on that phone in your laps. So, when it comes to your ministry, there will be no revelation, there will be no prophecy, there will be no writing on the wall either about you or to you. But there has been recorded general revelation and prophecies about you and I in general. And what I mean is that in the New Testament, there is clear revelation from God about what all Christians are called to do. In a sense, we have been, using Paul's word, entrusted with the ministry of the gospel with which Paul was entrusted and in turn entrusted to Timothy. Look back at verse 11 and where Paul was talking about himself. He says, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. And then we just read in verse 18 of this entrusting to Timothy. And then Timothy is then in turn to entrust this to others. We see this in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So over the centuries, the baton has been passed from person to person, from church to church. And now it lies in your hands. It stands in your lives. And perhaps your particular calling is not to battle false teachers. It may not be pastoral leadership, but there is a clear prophetic revelatory word in the New Testament that tells you and guides you on so many levels, all of which can be summarized by fight the good fight. Speaking of Christians, Paul often employs the metaphor of the soldier in combat. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 and 4, also written by Paul. He says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. He tells Timothy, Suffered, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Then using the illustration of a physical soldier, he goes on to say, no soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life 
so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Soldiers do not get distracted. Soldiers do not stand in the battlefield, in the foxholes, looking at Facebook, wondering if they left the stove on, worrying even about their family and friends. They are focused on the battle. And that is the illustration that Paul is making for the soldier of Jesus Christ. So when we look at all of these metaphors, when we understand that we are in a spiritual war, in a spiritual battle, then in no way, shape, or form can you interpret any of this as just be a Christian. Just believe. Just coast along and be focused on everything else. All that Paul is saying here involves effort and hard work like a soldier, blood, sweat, and tears. Friends, will you fight the good fight? Are you right now fighting the good fight? Not necessarily against society, not necessarily against those who are out there believing false things, teaching false things, but starting in your own heart, in your own sin, the battle against sin, you must wage war against your own flesh. This is where the battle begins. This is the height of the war. Paul continues and tells us that there are weapons of warfare. He mentions various illustrative weapons of warfare in the battle against sin and against false teachers throughout his epistles. Here he mentions two. And like any good physical weapon, its employment does not come easily. There must be training. There must be effort. There must be upkeep. There must be care. The good soldier examines his rifle. He takes it apart. He cleans it. He oils it. He takes care of it. And when that is done, the very weapons in our arsenal serve as our confidence that the fight is not only being fought, it is being won. So what are the weapons that Paul mentions here? This leads us to our second assurance of Christian service, the holy confidence. He lists them right there in the beginning of verse 19, keeping faith and a good conscience. You want to win the war? Here are your weapons. Keeping these two essential elements of Christianity are crucial in fighting the good fight of Christian service. We are armed with faith. We are armed with a good conscience. Lose those, you lose the battle. Faith. It can refer to objective faith, the faith, or subjective faith, your faith, the degree to which you hold to the gospel. Here it refers to the latter. It refers to one's personal faith and pursuit in the gospel, your personal diligence in holding fast to the objective truth, the objective faith. The conscience we have talked about in recent weeks. It is the monitoring or alarm system of the soul. It alerts you as to whether or not you are abiding by the standard which you claim in the life of the Christian. The standard is the word of God. It is the objective faith. Now what Paul does in talking about the conscience in the pastoral epistles is to deem one's conscience either good or bad from a theological perspective. Of course Paul does that. In other words, the condition of your conscience as a believer is going to be determined by your view intellectually and practically of the gospel. Adhere to the gospel in practice and your conscience is good. If you don't, then it's bad. And even if you believe it, but do not live according to it, your conscience is not good. Three times in 1 Timothy alone, faith and conscience are linked together, showing the connection between the spiritual and the moral. You say, wait a minute, I thought those were the same thing. They're distinct. There must be a moral response to the spiritual faith that you keep. And that response, your morality, 
is measured by your conscience. To put it another way, a good conscience is necessary to safeguard your faith. They work together. We can view this simple formula, formula as a litmus test of your spiritual walk. If you are struggling in your Christian faith, if you are lacking love, maybe you're questioning the importance of sound doctrine or particular doctrines. If you find yourself veering more to the world or the allures of personal comfort, don't just wonder what's going on. Don't just go to your small group leader or your pastor and say, I'm really struggling. I don't know what to do. Don't just pray aimlessly. Focus on these two aspects of your life. First, do you believe God's word? Do you believe the truth of God's word, which includes not just what God has done for you, but also who you are? as a sinner saved by grace who was still prone to wander. And if you believe those things, but still struggle with worship and godly living, then ask yourself if your belief has found its way into your behavior. Do you live according to what you profess? The seriousness of all of this is found not only in Paul calling this a war, fight the good fight, but also in his own experience, his personal experience of those who have not held on to their faith and good conscience. Look at the end of verse 19 for our third assurance of Christian service, the harrowing contrast. The contrast to those who faithfully serve. The end of verse 19 which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. The harrowing contrast. Since Christian service is part and parcel of your very being, unlike other public areas of service or involvement that you may be in, Christian service has deep consequences when not carried out properly. It isn't just that the food kitchen has one less spoon to serve the homeless the food. When you do not have a good conscience, when you do not show up for the battle in your own walk, there are serious, serious consequences. And building off of keeping faith and a good conscience, Paul warns about the consequences of not keeping the latter. Everything. From this point on through verse 20 that he is about to describe is due to a rejection of a good conscience. He says some have rejected it. They have pushed away their conscience. They have pressed down and stifled their desire to live according to the scriptures. And the Greek word that Paul uses here implies a forceful, violent rejection. In other words, this didn't just happen. It is a willful, deliberate rejection of holy living and integrity. The result in the rest of the verse is devastating. Because they have refused to live godly lives, they have, quote, suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. This is very serious. Paul is using the word shipwreck figuratively. Literally, It means to break a ship to pieces. And in the literal sense, by the time Paul writes 1 Timothy, he has experienced actual shipwreck four times and each time has lost everything except for his own life. As a metaphor, at that time, shipwreck was well known and was used, as is the case today, of a complete disaster. And when you see what has happened to those who reject a good conscience, you will agree that this is a metaphor appropriate, especially when used by someone who has actually experienced a physical shipwreck multiple times. By refusing to listen to your conscience or these individuals, by refusing to listen to their consciences and in turn living contrary to the scriptures they claim to believe, certain individuals have succumbed to moral failure. The shipwreck in their faith is not talking so much about doctrinal error, but ungodly living. 
which as we know is connected often to doctrinal error. It is often, especially in this context of uh, result of listening to false teachers, it can result in false teaching. But I want to be clear on one fact. This is not carelessness. This is an active shutting up of the conscience. And like many warning systems in life, the conscience does its job. It sounds the alarm. Now, whether or not you heed the alarm, that's a whole different story. The more you ignore it, the quieter it gets. The more you turn it off, the less power it has. Knowing about the country-wide test of the alarm system, this past week where your phone buzzed at around 1220, some of you, knowing it was coming, shut it off. We do that. You know someone that you dislike is coming down the road, you shut off your conscience ahead of time so you can do what you want to do in offense to God. We need to be careful because when we do that, when we tell it to be quiet, when we shut it off, pretty soon the conscience is so seared and neutralized, it is as good as non-existent. It is extinguished. This is actually evidence of God's love for us in that he does not control us like puppets, but allows us to make decisions for ourselves. The danger in this is when we pursue sin, not only living lives contrary to the faith, but searing and even altering our consciences along the way. What do you mean by alter your conscience? All men are given, Romans 1, a conscience by which they live by, to some degree, a morality that lines up with Scripture. But we see all around us that consciences have been altered, altered rather, such that, for instance, they actually, their conscience makes them feel guilty and wrong when they support life in the womb. Consciences are altered all the time. You keep shutting it up, you keep pursuing sin, you're going to mess up your God-given alarm system. The, the importance of the Christian's sensitivity to their own conscience underscores the need for a properly informed conscience. Reading and meditating on the Word of God, letting it soak into your life. You know from last week when I use that word meditate, I don't mean, mm, I mean thinking. That's what it means to think heavily and deeply on. What does that mean of the scriptures? Well, on a practical level, it means reading the Bible and saying or asking yourself, how does this apply to me today? And then not just answering that question, but making commitments to put that application into practice for the glory of God. And when we are not continually keeping our consciences sensitive to the things of God, then it will be easier to ignore it, easier to shut it up, to invalidate its effectiveness. And we see this. We see this in sin. You you see people sometimes who you know our believers, not just by their profession, but other areas of their life, but there's just a particular area that just seems so far gone. Maybe they're overly critical. Maybe they're just really nasty to certain people. And you say, how does that just happen? They're Christians. Where's their conscience? Well, over time, they have made it quiet and quiet. And it's, it's like anything. Like when you have scars on your hand, for those of you who work with your hands, or those of you who play a guitar or other instruments that require heavy force on your fingertips, things like that. After your first guitar lesson, you thought, I can't do this. This hurts. But after a while, strumming away, you don't feel it anymore. Glenn goes home and Cheryl says, there's a nail sticking out of your hand. He said, oh, I didn't even feel that. Just kidding, that doesn't actually happen. But you get my point. Just just don't feel it anymore. We, here I go on a rabbit trail, but we used to have, one of the nice things in Albania was 
they didn't have a lot of stores with pre-made things. And so when I wanted a desk, for example, for my office, uh, I went to our church's, uh, one of the cleaning ladies, her husband was a carpenter. And you just say, this is what I want. I can make it for my exact preferences, for my desk and Bible and chair. Another teammate uh, had bookshelves made that fit exactly in his, in his uh, apartment, and they would be cheaper than anything you would buy here that's already made. And remember my friend Justin saying, hey, did you hired him to make a desk, right? I'm like, yeah. It's like, we had bookshelves made. I said, were they good? He's like, they're great, but they are covered in blood because this guy is just cutting himself up and there was blood everywhere, which is... You know, that kind of thing's more acceptable in that country than it is here. Um, but we get callous to these things. I'm sure if it really hurt him, he would have stopped. He would have fixed it. But he didn't feel it. And this is what we can do with our consciences. It starts with just a glance. It starts with just a look. And then it's a fantasy. And then it's the internet. And on we go. It starts with just a... a a criticism in your mind and and immense guilt. And then it's fantasizing about what you would say if you had the opportunity, regretting that you didn't say it when the person insulted you. Then there's a text. Then there's a phone call. Then they're storming to the third floor to their office to tell it to them to their face. But you felt so bad when all you did would say one little negative thing in your mind a year ago because you have slowly suppressed and seared your conscience. We shut it up. We make it less and less effective. And what we see from Paul's warning is that it is not enough to believe. You must act Faith and a good conscience. It is not enough to go to church. It is not enough to even appreciate sound doctrine. You must live it. You must respond to it. And if you are a believer and you accept sound doctrine, then it is in your conscience and now has the role of telling you what behavior is right and what behavior is wrong. The ball is then in your court whether you want to do what is right or not. And what Paul goes on to say is that when you consistently choose actions that are contrary to the faith you proclaim, then eventually that faith is shipwrecked. And this further shows how faith and a good conscience are interdependent. One must lead to another or the whole thing falls apart. Now we understand that God is a forgiving God. And what's more, in his forgiveness, he gives grace and strength to continue carrying on for him according to his will. But when we choose not to do that, then this, at best, leads to a strained relationship with God that will affect everything else in your life as a believer. And at worst, it leads to apostasy, which is what we see here. More and more these days, there are Christians who like to dance in the gray instead of making a clear line between black and white. They push the limits as far as they can. And even as I say that, I would imagine our minds tend to automatically think of professing Christians we know that are sleeping around or getting drunk. But we need to understand that the slowly desensitized conscience can be just as dangerous. We call them respectable sins. A little gossip here, a little judgment there, excusing our anger because the kids were really bad today. Work was extremely stressful. Justifying the love of money by saying, oh, I'm being a good steward. Or, you know, it's just a culturally learned frugality. All of these sins, when habitually practiced or habitually rationalized, are small knocks of the hammer that slowly chip away at your conscience and your faith. And we saw in James, faith without works is dead. And that's what Paul is saying here by warning of the importance of a good conscience. And this warning is not a hypothetical. Paul has seen it and now goes on to name two individuals who have ignored their consciences to the point of shipwrecking their faith. The consequences of this he'll explain in greater detail. 
And that leads us to our fourth and final assurance of Christian service, the horrible consequence. We have seen the high calling, the holy confidence, the harrowing contrast, and now the horrible consequence. Speaking of those who have ignored their consciences, have shut it up, and have now shipwrecked their faith, he says in verse 20, among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. These two men are living proof that what Paul just warned about is very possible and very real. So who are these two individuals? Hymenaeus is mentioned again later by Paul to Timothy, in fact, in 2 Timothy 2.17, where he is described as someone who has gone astray from the truth. And that's all we know about him, these two verses. And we can safely assume because of how they're described in both of them that this is the same individual. Pinpointing who Alexander is is a little more difficult. There are four Alexanders in the New Testament And there is nothing that can guide us in satisfactorily connecting this Alexander with any of those. Some argue that this Alexander in 1 Timothy 1.20 is the Jewish Alexander in Acts 19.33, which is possible, but only if he had since professed Christ, because he has shipwrecked his faith here in Christ. We have no a proof of that, we just don't know. Uh, some say it's easy to connect this one to the Alexander the coppersmith in 2 Timothy 4.14, who Paul goes on to say did him much harm. But there's the problem of the distinction that there he says Alexander the coppersmith, which seems to be designating the Alexander of 2 Timothy as a different Alexander than the one here. Again, we just can't be certain, nor does it really matter to Paul's point for us. But don't get me wrong. The mention of these two men would have had great significance and heartbreak for Timothy, as he most likely knew them or knew of them. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't mention them by name. Some even believe Hymenaeus and Alexander were once leaders in the Christian church, but have since turned to false teaching and are now labeled as false teachers. I explain all of this to be thorough, but again, not the main point. Let's move on. Paul says that he has handed them over to Satan. The first thing to remember here is that Satan is under the sovereign control of God. You cannot say that God is sovereign over everything unless Satan shows up and messes that up because then God's not sovereign. And if God's not sovereign, throw this away because God is not God. Satan is under the sovereign control of God. This is actually not the only time in the scriptures that we see Satan being used by God as an agent of punishment for sinners. And this hierarchical order is emphasized by the fact that the phrase that Paul uses is not that Satan came and stole them, that Satan took them, or that they chose Satan. No, Paul says, in my authority as an apostle, I took them and handed them over to Satan. Handed over is the same terminology that Paul uses when he speaks of God delivering people over to what they want, which is their sin. Romans 1 is very clear of that. Speaking of mankind as a whole, turning from God to idols, Paul writes in Romans 1, 24 through 26, therefore God gave them over, that's the same word, in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over again to degrading passions. These are not holy people that God just kicked into sin. These are people who are pursuing them 
And in God's patience, he was holding them back to a degree. And because they refused to turn to him, he said, I'm going to give you what you are clearly choosing, giving them over to their sin. I want you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to be in there for a little bit. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So as far as handing them directly to Satan or the influence of Satan, we have 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 5, where he uses again the same word in the same context. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5. Paul writes, I have decided to deliver, same word again, such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So there's some sort of process of refining there where this person is delivered over to Satan by Paul for some sort of physical discipline and pain so that he might actually repent and his spirit be saved. Keep your finger in 1 Corinthians 5 for a minute as I explain what it means to hand someone over to Satan. Quite simply, very basically, it means excommunication. It means that the sinner is put out of the church. But what you need to understand that is this is more than a social issue. It's not just someone is no longer allowed to step foot in the church building or hang out at church functions. This is the act of removing someone, in this case a professing believer or formerly professing believer, removing someone from the care and protection of God and handing him or her over to the power of Satan, which would include the possibility of physical harm from the devil. The physical harm aspect of, is, of this is seen in the word we'll see later, the word taught, which Paul uses that speaks of training through physical punishment, spanking a child, for instance. Now, this separation from the church is drawn out by those Paul says he has delivered to Satan in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Look at verse 2 in 1 Corinthians 5. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who has done this deed, the sinful deed, would be removed from your midst. He is saying the Corinthians' sin is shown by the fact that they have not excommunicated this individual from their midst. Verses 6 and 7, we're staying in 1 Corinthians 5. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump just as you are in fact unleavened. In other words... The sinners and the holy ones have been mixed together. What he is saying with this analogy of dough is remove those who are unholy from your midst. Get them out. Verse 11, it goes further. It's not just out of the church. He says, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother. Again, they are calling themselves Christians. You are not, I've handed them the saint, you are not to even associate with them. Then verse 13, 1 Corinthians 5, but those who are outside, God judges, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. This is all attached to verse 5, where he says, I have delivered him over to Satan. And, of course, we also have the outline for church discipline in Matthew 18, which ends with the individual being put out of the church, treated like an unbeliever. Now, when we talk about handing over to Satan, perhaps especially this time of year in October with decorations and Halloween costumes around every corner, we might tend to envision something that's more Hollywood than Bible, this is not some sort of dramatic ceremony with handheld crosses and vials of holy water with one person screaming in terror with the other person screaming, be gone. This is not a person who because of this becomes homeless or destitute. He's not handed over to Satan and his flesh starts melting off of his face. 
He does not get some sort of disease in some way, although that is possible as part of this discipline and, and punishment. In fact, some of you know some of these people who have been disciplined out of the church, and from a worldly perspective, they become quite wealthy and powerful and popular in the world. Being handed over to Satan means being handed over to the world, the same world under demonic influence, by the way, that you flirt with every time you sin. And I make this clarification not to soften the severity of what Paul is saying here, but to heighten it. The world is evil. And without the divine protection of God that we so often take for granted and the caring guidance of the church, it is dangerous out there for the professing belief. When we talk about saying being used by God, there's clearly an added measure of severity for those who have rejected a good conscience and shipwrecked their faith, such as Hymenaeus and Alexander, because they once claimed or still claim a faith in Jesus Christ. And this is why the purpose of this is not purely for punishment, but for a lesson and hopefully repentance. Paul says back in 1 Timothy 1.20, so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. As mentioned earlier, the word taught is about training through physical discipline. It conveys the idea of stern punishment for the sake of correction. The emphasis here, however, being the punishment more than the learning. Hymenaeus and Alexander needed to be taught. They needed to be taught that what they were doing was so heinous in the eyes of God that they needed to be separated from God's people and given over to Satan. And I would say that if this strikes you as strange, granted there's a degree of this because we don't hear about this a lot, especially specifically named individuals. And again, you put yourself in Timothy's shoes or the, anyone in the early church back then, to, to hear that would have been shocking. But if you are struggling with this because you say, well, but God is forgiving, God is gracious. God is merciful. Look at the cross. Look at the cross. Look at the cross. You are theologically correct in that aspect of the gospel and God working in your life. But if the severity of discipline strikes you as too severe, then you really need to take a hard look at your understanding of and your reverence for God. Not godly living. Not God's blessings. Not God's grace. Not baby Jesus or Jesus on the cross. Not the God who you call Abba Father, but God, very God. Same God that I've just described, but also a God who is objectively right and true and holy and vengeful and judging and wrathful. You want to talk about God's love? He does this because he loves us. You want to talk about sacrificing the few for the good of the whole? We are the bride of Christ. And if you saw someone at your best friend's wedding day, and one of the groomsmen is in the back room hitting on the bride you would take him by the scruff of the neck and drag him off the premises for the purity of the bride of Christ. Such discipline 
is not only necessary, it is fully and completely in line with who God is. But back to the text. What is it that they specifically did that was so gross? Blasphemy. Blasphemy. We saw this in verse 13 among the list of transgressions of Paul's former life that led him to classify himself as the foremost of sinners. You might recall that a blasphemer is someone who slanders God. This can run the gamut from speaking negatively about him to denying his majesty from mocking his word, even if it's particular doctrines, mocking his people, or flat-out teaching false doctrine. And as you read of these two men, I would ask you to approach this passage with the same attitude that you read any portion of Scripture that is not as a good story, but as a lesson, and in this case, a warning. What Paul did with Hymenaeus and Alexander the church is called to do today with any unrepentant sinner in the church. But it is also a warning to us that we, if we continue to tell our consciences to shut up, pretty soon God will say, that one, shut him out. As we look to the passage as a whole, We need to remember this warning is unnecessary if we stick with the full and sacrificial commitment and service like a good soldier of Christ. And when it comes to Christian service, there are four things, four assurances, four things we can be assured of. That as believers, we all, even without direct prophecy, we all have a high calling as we have been entrusted with the commands of God and are to take them to heart and fight the good fight. Secondly, we have a holy confidence in God that we must hold on to by keeping the faith and living it out with a good conscience. Thirdly, that there is a harrowing contrast to those who indeed do not keep the faith and good conscience and thus have rejected holy living. They end up shipwrecking their faith And finally, there's a horrible consequence of this failure, which is to be turned out of the church, uh, out from under God's spiritual protection and delivered over to Satan, or at least to the world controlled by him. This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them... You fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. Let's pray. Father, may this not be us. May we not be those who willfully reject our conscience, who question the faith, who take it lightly, who think it's okay to accept just the gospel and reject everything else regarding holy living, or even to reject just those one or two doctrines we don't like. Help us to live in a way that we appreciate the holiness of our God and what that means beyond the grace beyond the blessings, beyond the care. Father, may we live in a way that we keep the faith and a good conscience, being motivated by our love for you, being motivated by our gratitude to you, being motivated by our desire to worship you, but also, Lord, being motivated by our fear of you. Use us to that end. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's stand as we close in song.